So this morning, Palm Sunday, and next week, Easter, we are going to be working with the idea of Jesus and the powers. And we're going to be looking at the triumph of humble and self-sacrificial love. Think of Monday Thursday and foot washing. Think of Good Friday and the cross. Think of the darkness of tomb and Holy Saturday. And as we just heard read in the gospel for Palm Sunday, the crowds that line the streets as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they point us to the rule and reign of God in what I want to call this morning the social sphere, right? This was a very social, civic, societal event. It, you know, it didn't happen in a synagogue somewhere. It was a public event. And then next week on Easter, we'll celebrate the personal dynamics of God's victory over the disordered powers in us. So we'll look at Jesus and the powers in sort of our, our personal lives next week. So our gospel reading this morning describes a Jesus as king, and a king that even the rocks would know about. But what sort of king? There is an underlying subtext, an underlying meaning to the triumphal entry that if we go all the way back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, we might say that this is the song of Mary in Luke 1 coming to pass, that here we have a humble and really subtle defeat of the powers. You may remember back uh, to Advent when Mary said, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. The other thing that you might, this is more of a Pauline picture, obviously, of, of the feeling or the vibe or the underlying value, you might say, of, of Palm Sunday, is think of that passage in Colossians 2, where Paul says that Jesus disarmed the powers making a spectacle of them, overcoming them with, and you'll note the next word is not a weapon. The next word is not a tactic. The next word isn't a brilliant strategy, but he overcame the powers through the cross. And so that's the humility, that's the subtleness, that's the we might say, eyebrow-raising part of this, the tilt-your-head part of this, how does this really work? And of course, the picture we're meant to see is that Jesus triumphs over the powers not by amassing power to himself, not by building a coalition with evil. And this, of course, was offered to him. You remember Luke 4 in the temptation passage where the enemy says to him, I'll give you all authority and splendor. It's been given to me. And I can give it to anybody I want to. Well, of course, this isn't true. Satan never actually had that kind of authority and power to give to Jesus. And in John 8, Jesus makes this plain by saying, there is no truth in the, in the Satan or in the devil. Lies are his native language, and his father is the father of lies. It's a deception. And it's a deception in marriages. It's a deception in boardrooms. It's a deception in politics. It's a deception everywhere that for me to make a difference, I must amass power to myself. I must find a way to get it and hold it and use it to my ends. It has always been and always will be a deception. For think with me clearly here for a minute. 
when you're working and walking with God, what more possible power could you need? And from where would you get any sort of superior power? And this, of course, is the magic of Jesus. That the devil's actually judged and dethroned precisely by the life of Jesus, his manner of being, his teaching, his works of power. You might say the Holy Week of Jesus is what dethrones the powers. In John 16, Jesus says, the prince of this world now stands condemned. Or we could cite many of the beautiful pictures of this in Revelation, but just think of Revelation 11. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And this Lord who is king, who even the rocks know about this, this one will reign forever. So sitting with this this week, it just kind of dawned on me. As soon as I say it, you'll go, well, duh. But it just dawned on me that it's no wonder then that the fundamental message of Jesus was seek first the kingdom of God. And come follow me. Come be my apprentice in kingdom living. Come see what it's like to take your little queendoms and our little kingdoms and place them in his kingdom and find the freedom that's in that as opposed to the neurosis of having to find power somewhere else in life, especially when power is normally seen as a zero-sum game. So that when I take from you to amass for myself, you become a loser because I just took from you. But I say again, when you're working with God and his kingdom, his rule and reign, it's enormously freeing. But, you know, every Christian has lived in a difficult time uh, to find God. Our difficulty is we live in this highly materialist worldview. Right, like sort of post-enlightenment, post-industrial revolution. You know, we, we live in this highly materialistic worldview, materialist. And of course, you know, we most commonly see this perhaps in our consumerism and in our power politics. And this, I think, presents or prevents us from often seeing Jesus' victory over the powers, which really is like a mustard seed. It would be some fun for you someday, someday to just go read the parables of Jesus and, and reflect on, again, the humility and the subtleness that's in almost every one of those parables. That the kingdom, it's happening, but it's like a mustard seed. I mean, good things are happening. God's will is unfolding, but it's unfolding in a way that according to God's superintending wisdom, can you feel those two words? his superintending wisdom. It's according to that that evil still exists in the world. Evil isn't a cosmic oops. That we, we will never understand this. That somehow in God's shaping of his own creation, that for his own purposes, but under his superintending eye, evil exists. But it's helpful to know that when Christians were eaten by lions or set on fire, they did so knowing that the gospel was more powerful than any political threat. And if you think about it, their acts of faithfulness ignited a whole civilization's faith and continues to animate and enliven oppressed peoples to today. Well, Psalm 18 gives us another window into the issue of power. If you look at that with me, it says, that the stone the builders rejected, and that's a very important phrase, the builders. The builders are people of power. 
And so we read it on Palm Sunday as a way of reminding us that there were men of power, men who lived with lots of systemic and, and title-based power in Jesus' way. And, and these, this is known as, this is a negative. This isn't like a positive or a neutral. It's a negative. It's meant to remind us of those who maintain oppressive systems of injustice, those who marginalize the undesirables, the outcasts, the abnormal people. And of course, these men of power, these builders, this is precisely the way they thought of Jesus. And thus he was to be rejected for not conforming to their norms. But the, the, the beauty, the, the sort of judo, you know, of taking the force of this and turning it around again in this highly subtle sort of way, the psalmist wants us to hear that God has taken what's been rejected and discarded as weak and powerless and has made it the source of structural integrity. And I want you to feel that with me. You know, a capstone or a cornerstone, it's that stone that makes the whole rest of what's being built have integrity. And what's being said to us here is that what makes us as people and as a congregation and as a universal church have integrity? You know, Peter says we're living stones being built into this wall. What makes this have integrity is this gentle, humble, subtle, like a mustard seed. It's spreading over the earth. But as I frequently say, everything on our news feed says the opposite. And, and there's so much of a rejection of God in our society today that we can begin to feel foolish. Like, are, are we foolish for believing this stuff? Like, are we just making this up? Like, is this real? And of course, this has always been the case. And it becomes a rationale then for that actually this might just be a wish dream, so I better go get the power I need in life to secure myself. And on and on and on that story has gone for many thousands of years, before Christ even. On and on that story has gone with the people of God. It's a way of understanding judges. It's a way of understanding kings. It's a way of understanding Samuel is this just sort of misnotion of, is God with us? And the circumstances seem to say no, and thus I have to do something. Well, there's a refrain that you can see right at the top of the psalm and at the, then at the end of the psalm. I love the way the message, message gets this. Thank God he's so good, his love never quits. And the underlying concept here is the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed is this really treasured attribute of God. It means his desire and his ability to keep comfort. And again, I want you to feel those two words, his desire. Not just his ability, his desire to keep covenant. So think of the times you screw up so bad that you wonder what God thinks about you. He has in him a native fundamental desire like native to his personhood, is a desire to keep company with you and with me. It's not something he grudgingly or gruntingly does. It's fundamental to who he is. And this is what his people in the Old Testament celebrated with this word, said that God was loyal and dependable, that he was full of this kind sort of love, is gracious and, and merciful in a sort of ultimate kind of way. That's what said's getting at. And so this is a really deep reality, I think, to be greatly treasured. And I think it's the basis for encouragement and for healing of the generalized anxiety that so many people feel today. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. 
I mean, study after study after study from sociologists to psychologists to anthropologists. I mean, as study after study after study just shows this growing like a flood of, of generalized anxiety in most human beings. But what if underneath all this, a mustard seed is growing? Like, what if underneath all this is the said of God? Who will keep covenant with not only his people, but with his intention and creation. So see, Jesus' alternate worldview about power, about who had it and how it was meant to function, even in Jesus' day, it held very little attraction for most of his hearers. Think with me. They accused him of breaking the law. They accused him of being in league with the devil. They accused him of being wrong about the kingdom of God. They thought they knew how the power of the kingdom would come. That it would, be, it would come more like Caesar on a war horse. Not this gentle man from the desert riding a donkey. I mean, they knew that that's how Pilate would lead his imperial cavalry and his soldiers. It just never dawned on them that God's kingdom is coming not through the kind of powers that we normally assume get things done, but that God's kingdom was coming through gentleness and mercy and peaceableness and self-giving acts of love and compassion. So Palm Sunday and Holy Week, they set before us a kind of shaking, a clashing and rearranging of the powers. Again, if you just picture Jesus riding in, you, you might, in Jerusalem, you might not think that's what's going on. But if you've heard and believed the parables of, for instance, the mustard seed, then you're aware that this is a rearranging of the powers that sets before every human being since and up to today a decision. Caesar's style of power, of brutal and ruthless domination, or a Jesus sort of power, a Jesus sort of kingship, of justice, mercy, freedom, peace, and love. That's always been counterintuitive. It's not merely counterintuitive to 21st century politicians. It was counterintuitive 2,000 years ago. What's intuitive is amass great sums of money, amass political or corporate power, recruit minions, confront them by fear and by amassing other weapons, create peace by starting another war, and win, defined in any given age, as defined by the world, at all costs. That's what's normally intuitive. But our gospel reading this morning shows us that Jesus rides into town on a lowly farm animal, giving himself freely and without reservation, having said of himself, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Come, follow me. See, Jesus' kind of power in the social realm, it's plain for any leader or ruler to see should they want to see it. This is plain in English, everywhere English is spoken in the world. I can guarantee you the Bible is known. And anybody who wanted to learn about an alternative source of power, it is available for them to learn. It's available in Spanish. I forget in the Wycliffe numbers, but it's available in hundreds of languages. I mean, essentially, the Bible is almost available in every language. 
It's right there for anybody who would want, did you catch that word? Would want to see and live into a different reality concerning the powers. It's right in front of them. It's right in front of them for Latin American dictators. It's right in front of them for anybody who wants to see there is another way of doing this. There's another way of being human. There's another way of being with each other socially, what we normally call politics. I mean, politics, benignly put, is just how the way human beings agree to be with each other. You know, now it's become like this big media fest and rock stars, but all politics is meant to be is if you're going to be together, whether it's 12 of you in a little tribe or, you know, 40 million of you in California, how are you going to be together? That's all politics is. Like, it's just arranging, okay, who's going to do the roads and who's going to do the bridges and how are we going to do healthcare? That's all it's meant to be. Now, you just think about doing that in a Jesus sort of way or in a Caesar or Pilate sort of way. Now, underneath this knowledge of Jesus and, and how he portrayed the power of God is an invitation. I love the little Greek word mimeo. Uh, from it, we get the word mimic. And it's all through Paul and all through the Gospels, sometimes more or less explicitly. But it, it's just the notion, you know, where Paul's, a classic one is where Paul says, follow me as I'm following Christ. That's mimeo. Mimic me as I'm mimicking Christ. And it raises for all of us, I think, whether we're a world ruler or a dad or a single mom or whatever, it raises the question and the notion that the biggest question I will ever answer is from whom am I learning to do life? Now, you might think the biggest question is, where are you going when you die? Well, I'm so bold as to say, is you can answer that question, I'm going to heaven when I die, and still be a major jerk. But if you say, I am learning to do life from Jesus, you will become a different sort of person and heaven will be thrown in. What would you do with your followers if you were God? Of course, the, the, the idea here is, that this is a heart issue, mimicking before it's kind of embodied in practices, it's a heart issue. It's a matter of our desires and wills. It's not primarily intellectual. I mean, I'm just convinced from watching this in myself and others for more than 40 years that I think the hard part of letting Jesus show us how to properly engage with power is to want to. See, we tend to let ourselves off the hook by saying things like, well, it's so hard. Or the classic is, well, I'm only human. Yeah, so go home and read Psalm 8. Find out what it means to be human. To be made a little lower than the angels. And to be God's stewards of his creation on the earth. You don't ever get to say, I'm only human. You get to say, holy cow, I'm human. Right? And so we let ourselves off the hook with all these euphemisms. When in reality, I think we'd be so much more honest just to say, why is it that I actually don't want to engage with Jesus in these ways? And just be honest about it. I said last week, I think, if, you, if you're just honest about this stuff and you just sort of peel back the onion layers little by little by little, what you're going to find there is not a frowning, angry, cursing at you God. You're going to find God with probably a little wry smile on his face, and you're going to find deliverance. God wants it more than you want it. But we just have to kind of wrestle it. We'll just gently, peacefully wrestle it down. 
So now as we turn uh, into Holy Week, I want to encourage you to give yourself the gift of Holy Week. I know you can't all come every week. It's like too far for lots of you to drive and stuff. But to the degree that you can, give yourself to Holy Week this week, perhaps thinking about how this disarms not only the societal powers, but how it disarms the disordered powers within us. And just as you walk through it, observe how Jesus relates to power. Each evening we're together, will have its own special flavor and capacity to move us towards the mind of Christ. Think of Maundy Thursday, the warm, tele, the warm table fellowship and enacting the Last Supper. We have the very emotional moment of stripping the altar. Good Friday, thinking through and meditating on the meaning of the cross. Holy Saturday, we learn to sit with darkness. We learn to sit with ambiguity. We learn to sit with the cloud of unknowing and wonder what it's like to have that sort of darkness. And then next Easter, out in the uh, courtyard over there, uh, the great celebration of Easter. Well, when the team and I were putting together this Holy Week, um, we had the notion, I just want to suggest to you, obviously nothing here is ever a forced march, um, but if this sounds good to you, if, if like it, it makes sense with what the Spirit is already doing in your life, we wanted to propose that maybe from today or maybe starting tomorrow through Thursday evening when we gather out here on the courtyard, that you engage in some sort of fast. It could be anything. It could be food or drink or something else, but food would be best of some sort. And then when we get together out here on Thursday, we'll kind of break the fast together as we engage in this um, recollection of the Passover supper on Monday, Thursday.